0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Luke chapter 20 verses 19 through 26. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word to you this morning. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, as you know, Jesus is currently in his Passion Week. He's just days away from instituting the the Lord's Supper with his disciples at Passover, of going to the cross, the, the culmination of his earthly ministry. And as you know, he is spending his remaining days in the temple courts. He's been teaching, but we've also witnessed and will continue to witness a number of interactions that he has with the religious leaders of his day. And these religious leaders have been and are trying to challenge Jesus' authority. We saw that uh, last week. And they're trying to trip him up trying to make him say something that will get him in trouble, either with the Roman officials or the people, uh, the Jewish people who are hearing him teach and speak. And so these religious leaders in our passage before us, they employ spies or henchmen, as it were, to to go before Jesus and ask him a question. And the question that they ask Jesus is, is a difficult question. It's a difficult question. Is it lawful to pay tribute or taxes to Caesar? Now, of course, the question is not about Roman law. That's obvious. Jews were required by law, by Roman law, to pay this tribute. The question is over God's law. What's God's opinion on the matter? What does God commend the Jews to do in this situation? And the question really isn't just about paying monetary taxes, it's deeper than that. It's honor. The paying of taxes was a display of honor to Caesar who is himself a pagan king, a ruler, who doesn't profess faith in Yahweh, who has a very different outlook on the world, a very different set of ethics than, than these Jewish people. Is it lawful, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? It's a difficult question. This is a question that was it unique to the Jews in the first century. If you just go back a few centuries when Israel was in, uh, in, in their holy land and the Babylonians came and, and destroyed this holy city, destroyed God's holy house and brought them into Babylon, they had to wrestle with this question. How do we now live under foreign oppression in the midst of a pagan society when these leaders just destroyed our most sacred place, the temple? Is a question that we ask ourselves even today as we live in the midst of a a pagan society. It's a difficult question. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of of these religious leaders, there's some genius behind this question, is there not? If you're trying to trip Jesus up, uh, trying to elicit a response that's going to outrage somebody, you ask him this sort of political question. Well, this indeed is a difficult question, but Jesus in response offers an utterly profound answer. Now it's only a sentence long. It's only about 17 words. It's, it's short, it's brief, but it's utterly profound. And this answer that Jesus gives, we know was, was very influential upon the apostles. Peter, who may have been there in, in, uh, at this scene, and, and Paul, who was not there, but was influential by, uh, by what Jesus says here, and it was influential upon the post-apostolic church as they sought to navigate some of these very difficult issues of being a, a small, marginalized sect in the midst of a very pagan community. So what I'd like us to do this morning is to consider this question in, in, in the context in which it is given, and then I'd like us to consider the answer. And I'll point you your attention to a number of things that we can learn from Jesus' answer to, uh, to these spies. Well, as you can see, this passage begins with a reference to last week's passage. These religious leaders are enraged. They're angry because they have perceived that this parable that Jesus has, has, has just given was spoken against them. Now, remember this parable that Jesus told last week. There's a parable about a vineyard. A vineyard was really at the center of the Jewish consciousness, their national identity. That's how they thought of themselves, as a vineyard. And in this parable, there are tenants of this vineyard, and these tenants kill a number of the owner of the vineyard servants who come to them. And this ultimately climaxes in these tenants killing the owner of the vineyard's son. As you can imagine, the owner of the vineyard isn't too happy about this. And so he comes in verse 16. And he comes in judgment. And we get this statement that the owner of the vineyard is going to come to these tenants and destroy them, judge them for their past transgressions and actions and rejection of of the servants and of the son. And the owner of the vineyard is going to remove the vineyard from their stewardship and give it to another people. Well, these religious leaders recognize that these tenants represent them. As you can imagine, they're not too happy. They're enraged. And we we learn that their initial reaction is to try to lay hands upon him. But they're restrained. Why are they restrained? They fear the people. Remember in verse six, when they were challenging Jesus' authority, by what authority do you have to say such outrageous, maybe even blasphemous words? And Jesus responds with a question. He says, well, what about John the Baptist? Where did his authority come from? And they were unable to honestly answer that question because, because why? They feared the people. They feared that the people would be enraged and stone them. So here again, the religious leaders are restrained because of their fear of of the people. Consequently, they devise another plan. And in their perspective, a better plan. And their plan is to employ spies, henchmen. Matthew tells us that these were the, the disciples of the Pharisees to go to to Jesus with a seemingly innocent innocent question. They're going to come as, as, as interested bystanders and they're going to ask a question that's going to elicit a very bold response that's going to outrage either the Roman officials or the people. And the religious leaders then can just stay in the background and the Jesus problem gets taken care of and they keep a good rapport with the people. So in their mind, this is a much better plan. And so they send these spies, these disciples of the Pharisees to Jesus. And in verse 21, notice their their strategy. They're pretending to be sincere. Pretending to be sincere. They're coming with flattery. They come to Jesus and um, they say, teacher. When we look at, in Luke's gospel especially, the use of that title. Most of the time, if not all the time, it's used by people outside of of the circle of disciples who are wanting to get something out of Jesus, who are wanting just to flatter Jesus. The rich young ruler, the lawyer, teacher. So that immediately should should be a cue to us that they are indeed pretending to be sincere, flattering Jesus. And you say, teacher, we know that you teach rightly. We know that you show no partiality and that you truly teach the way of God. Now, Matthew's version of this passage, uh, we read that this, these spies also say that Jesus doesn't care about anyone's opinion. And he is not swayed by appearances. Notice the tactic that these spies are employing. They're, they're trying to flatter Jesus out by, by uh, seeking to, to boost his ego about his boldness and confidence about how he doesn't care who his audience is, he's going to speak his mind. And then they're going to ask him a very provocative question, a question that they think is going to elicit a very bold response that will either anger the Roman officials, the governor, which is Pilate, or the people. And so verse 22, we come to the question, simple, straightforward question, is it lawful to give tribute, it's a tax, uh, to Caesar or not? As I already mentioned, this is not a question about Roman law, that's clear. This is a question about God's law, what's God's opinion on the matter? When you look at how this word lawful is used, even in the context of Luke's gospel, it's used to refer to God's law. In Luke chapter 6, and Luke chapter 14, the same word is used as, the quest- as, as, as Jesus asks the rhetorical question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It's a question not about man's opinion, but about God's opinion. What's God's opinion on the matter? What does his law say about the issue? And that phrase, for us, is it lawful for us? the original language, this is placed in the emphatic position. So it's a question about the Jews, us Jews, the chosen people of God, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to this pagan ruler? It's not just a a matter of of the money, this likely was just a denarius tax, a day's worth of wages. Now this probably would have been difficult for some people, for most people this wasn't a, a huge financial burden. But again, it was that that deeper issue of, do we show honor, honor to Caesar? And furthermore, the issue of taxes was a very emotional issue for the Jewish people because it was a constant annual reminder that they're under foreign oppression. It was a reminder that they're not an independent nation. It was a reminder that the glory days of old, David and Solomon were long gone. Is it lawful? for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. Thus these religious leaders are are seeking to put Jesus in an utterly impossible situation. Because if he says no, just this flat out says no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well then Jesus is going to be labeled as a rebel He's going to be accused of seeking to lead an insurrection against Rome, and that's the last thing that Rome wanted, especially among the Jewish people, was an insurrectionist. And he would be thought of as just another Jewish political zealot. But, on the other hand, if he answered this question and said, yes, it is lawful, no qualification, then these people, these Jewish people, in his hearing may become outraged and do what the religious leaders were fearing that they might do to them, stone him. We know this because in verse 26, we read, and they, that is to say the spies, were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. So they were trying to either outrage the people or outrage the Roman officials, it's a lose-lose situation. One of the reasons why uh, the Jews hated tax collectors so much, especially Jewish tax collectors, is because they were traitors. They were working for Rome and collecting taxes from their own people on their behalf. And so they're trying to put Jesus in an utterly impossible situation. Imagine this moment. That question is posed. There's no doubt a crowd before Jesus there may have even been uh, Roman officials or people who were representing them. These spies, and I'm sure people were hanging the balance. What, what is Jesus going to, what is he going to do? How does he respond? When verse 23, we, we read, Luke tells us that Jesus, right off the bat, he perceived their craftiness. He perceived their craftiness. He was not, uh, he was not deceived by their apparent uh, uh, politeness and uh, commendations. He perceived their craftiness, and this, this word "craftiness the other times it's used in the New Testament, it, it always has negative connotations. Come across this word, you know that they're up to no good. He perceived their craftiness. And so then Jesus, in response, he begins by asking for a Denarius, uh, the basic monetary unit at that time, and he asks a very simple question. He says, "Whose inscription is on this coin?" would have been a basic answer, Caesar. On the uh, denarius at that time, there would have been a, a depiction of Caesar with the inscription of uh, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the back side, would have been, had a, a picture of his mother who was the uh, thought to be the incarnated prophetess of, of peace. So Caesar, Caesar's on the coin. Now this would have been, may have been a, a, a a problem for some conscientious Jews because Jews knew that they were not to worship images, especially images of other so-called deities. And so you have a coin with a a Caesar who's claiming to be divine. Nevertheless, Jesus asked for the coin. And I would imagine people at this moment are are again, just waiting to hear how Jesus is going to respond. Recall the context. Jesus has recently, he recently mounted a donkey, rode into Jerusalem, indicating that he is the king of God's people from Zechariah chapter 9. He cleansed the temple, which is absolutely outrageous to do. He, he uh, asserted that he is the cornerstone of a new and greater temple. And now the question is put before him, how does your kingdom relate to Caesar's kingdom? Imagine the suspense of, of how Jesus will respond. I imagine a lot of people... Hadn't been thinking about this question, but after it's been posed, you are like, yeah, that, that actually is a pretty good question. How does your kingdom relate to Caesar's kingdom? This leads then to verse 25, which is Jesus's response, which is profound, but yet brief. And he says this, he says, again, in the context of of showing that this coin, this denarius has the depiction of Caesar on it. He says, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. Now a number of commentaries uh, believe, commentators, excuse me, believe that the Old Testament text that is lying in the background of this statement by Jesus is Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Recall what Genesis 1.26 says. It's, it's the doctrine that establishes human beings as image bearers of God. God says in his creation week, let us make man in according to our image and according to our likeness. This teaches us that every single human being is an analog of God, an image bearer of God, even as fallen sinners, we still retain that image. We still retain the status of, of, of analogs of God himself. Remember the context then. Jesus has, has just asked for the coin and said, well, whose inscription is on the coin? Well, Caesar. His point then is to, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning if the coin is made in the image of Caesar, then it belongs to Caesar. If that's true, then, We are to render to God the things that are God's, which means if we bear the image of God, then we belong to God. Get the logic? The coin is made in the image of Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. If we are image bearers of God, we then belong to God. Render to God the things that are God's. This is what it means to be an image bearer of God. To be an image bearer of God means that we were created for the praise and glory of God himself. It means that we are called by virtue of creation to give to God our wholehearted obedience and devotion. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We can't look at any part of our life, any talents, abilities, wealth, anything, and and, and say that's mine and not God's. God deserves, God requires, our wholehearted devotion and, and obedience. Well, how are you doing in that? How are you doing in rendering to God the things that are God's? Loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Considering the interests of others above your own. How are you doing that? Or are you more characterized by rendering to yourself the things that are God's? And caring more about your priorities than God's priorities, and, and caring more about your interests than your neighbor's interests. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all would have to say that the latter characterizes us more than the former. We habitually, habitually render to ourselves the things that properly belong to God by virtue of us being made in His image. Is He irrational? It's idolatry. We go against the moral order of this universe when we do that. We go against how God himself made us to live as his creatures. This is exactly why Jesus entered human history. Jesus, who has existed for all eternity as the second person of the Trinity, took upon himself a human nature. A human nature which itself bore the image of God. He was the second Adam. And Jesus was the only person who has ever lived to perfectly and perpetually render to God the things that are God's. Jesus was the only one who perfectly and perpetually gave to God his wholehearted devotion and obedience. Recall his words when he says, I I came down not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Or in just two chapters from Luke chapter 20 when he is in the moment of all is praying before he's about to go to the cross and, and, and agonizing over what's going to happen when he hangs on that Roman cross and bears hell for every single one of his people. Imagine that, our sins, one person's sins equals an eternity in hell due to God's justice. And Jesus bore on the cross Hell for every single one of his his people. We can't even begin to imagine what he was agonizing over. And yet, what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was the only person who lived as a perfect image bearer of God. And this is good news for us. This is good news for us because God requires in order to enter his his rest, in order to enter his heavenly throne room, we need to be perfect image bearers of him. And so Jesus did this, not for himself primarily, but for us. He did this so that when you profess faith in him, his righteousness, his whole entire life of rendering to God the things that are God's, it becomes yours. So if you profess faith in Christ, if you are in Christ, what that means is that God now only looks at you through the glasses of Christ, through the lens of Christ. And when he looks at you through the lens of Christ, he sees someone who has always perfectly and perpetually obeyed. Someone who has always perfectly and perpetually rendered to God the things that are God's. That's how God sees you even in your darkest days. Even when you're struggling with the deceitfulness of sin, God sees you as someone Who has always perfectly and perpetually rendered to God the things that are God's. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. And so here, ironically Jesus is teaching us about his mission. A mission that's much greater than taxes and Caesar's role in the first century. Therefore the first thing that we learn from Jesus's answer is that more fundamental than, than The role of Caesar in the first century more fundamental than the issue of legitimate or illegitimate taxes is one's relationship to God. More fundamental than these earthly political questions is heavenly politics, the heavenly city. Hebrews says that we we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Heavenly politics are more fundamental than earthly politics. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Whose righteousness are you depending upon, yourself or Christ's? That's what we are to consider. Well, of course, this question that's coming to Jesus from these earthly spies uh, is not wanting to know about heavenly politics, it's about earthly politics. They want to know about Caesar's role, they want to know about earthly taxation and whether this is a legitimate tax that they are bound to. And so I'd like to make a few comments on, on this, and because Jesus does secondarily speak to, to this issue at hand. Now, recall that, that connection that I made between what Jesus says here in Genesis 126. The coin is in the image of Caesar, and we as image bearers are obviously in the image of God. The coin belongs to Caesar, we belong to God. What this tells us then is that every single human being is under God's authority and accountable to him. It's not as if we step outside the church and we enter this autonomous zone. God reigns in the church, outside the church, it's free reign. Everyone's their own autonomous individual. No, by virtue of being created in the image of God, every single human person is accountable to God whether they acknowledge it or not. Which means Caesar, was accountable to God. Nebuchadnezzar was accountable to God. Our own civic leaders, our own president, accountable to God. Whether these people acknowledge it or not, they're accountable by virtue of their creation, the image of God. I think that's the first thing that we learn about this as it relates to the earthly city. But Calvin, as he comments on on Matthew's version of this this passage, but this same the same answer that Jesus gives. He says that these words of Jesus indicate for us a clear distinction between the spiritual and between spiritual and civil government. What he's saying is that Jesus is making a distinction between this common sphere or domain that we share in common with with unbelievers, with people who share very different outlooks on life different worldviews, even different ethics. We share that in common. Caesar's kingdom as it were, Jews and Romans have to get along. He's distinguishing that from God's kingdom, i.e. his special and redemptive kingdom that finds its institutional form in the church. Spiritual government, civil government. Common kingdom, his special redemptive kingdom. Calvin then goes on to say that Jesus also is trying to correct a view of some who think that to properly submit to God's authority means that we submit to no earthly authority. To properly submit to God's authority means that we submit to no earthly authority. But Jesus here is saying, no, Caesar has legitimate authority. If the the coin is made in his image, render that to Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and then render to God the things that are God's. God establishes earthly authorities to govern in his stead. And yes, they're accountable to him, but he still establishes earthly authorities. I mentioned at the onset that what Jesus says here was was influential upon the apostles. The profound statement that was influential upon the Apostles, it was influential upon Peter himself as we see in 1 Peter 2, but it was also influential upon Paul. Now Paul wasn't here of course, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit we see some very, very clear connections between what Jesus says here and what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. So listen briefly to, to a little bit of what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then Paul goes on to say that the magistrate is God's servant or minister. It's exactly what Jesus said. Paul is saying that the magistrate was instituted by God and is is accountable to God as a servant and minister of him, whether the magistrate acknowledges it or not. We all are image bearers of God and thus are accountable to him. That's what Jesus' point was. But then Paul goes on to say that the magistrate is called to bear the sword as a servant of God, to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath and the wrongdoer. And then in verses five through seven, he calls the, this church in Rome to be, uh, to be in subjection to him, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Not only is Paul picking up on what Jesus says in terms of of all authority being accountable to God, but Paul also is distinguishing between these two domains or spheres or kingdoms. Paul here calls the magistrate a servant of God. Now, when we look at how that word is used throughout the, the New Testament, Paul himself describes himself and the rest of the apostles as servants. You begin to scratch your head and you think, well, how can the magistrate Nero be a servant of God? And how can Paul and the apostles be servants of God? Well, We have to realize that these are two different kingdoms. They have different job descriptions. Paul tells us that the job description of the magistrate is to enforce the physical sword, to collect taxes, among other things. But the apostles, as ministers in God's special redemptive kingdom, they're not called to bear the the physical sword. Rather, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What Paul is saying is that as ministers in God's church, they don't wield a physical sword, but a spiritual sword of the word of God, which tears down divine strongholds. So Paul's making that clear distinction. Caesar's kingdom's God's kingdom. Different job descriptions. And lastly, Paul also does call for uh, for Christians to submit, to render to Caesar the things that are properly owed him. And we should acknowledge that Scripture here, Jesus, Paul, Peter, and 1st Peter 2, they're giving us a general principle. And there are exceptions to these principles. We see in the book of Daniel that Daniel had a line that he was not willing to cross when it came, it comes to submission to uh, the king of Babylon. Acts 5 speaks about obeying God rather than men in certain occasions. So th- this is establishing the principle, a principle that we need to hear, albeit there are exceptions. Same thing with a lot of, lot of issues of God's law. For instance, sometime, uh, there are many instances in Scripture where, where we hear that marriage is to be perpetual. And one should never divorce, but then we also realize in other places of Scripture that there are exceptions that provide for legitimate grounds of of divorce. So there's principles, and then there are are times exceptions to principles. But we do need to hear this principle that Jesus, Paul, the rest of the apostles are laying out before us. In 1 Peter 2, Peter picks up on a lot of these same ideas and he, he describes New Covenant Christians in this context as exiles, like Israel and Babylon. Who were called to submit, called to seek the welfare of the city, called to plant trees, build homes, but not forget that their true home is in Jerusalem. Not to forget that they were, as their fundamental identity, members of God's chosen people. And this this brief phrase that Jesus gives here was also picked up by the post-apostolic church as Augustine speaks about the two cities, the city of man, the city of God. The medieval church uh, speaks about the two swords, uh, the civil sword, the ecclesiastical sword. And then uh, Calvin Luther speaks about this distinction between these two domains, the common kingdom and, and the redemptive kingdom. Thus, Jesus, in responding to these spies, utters an utterly profound but brief answer. An answer that leaves his interlocutors in silence. That's how this this passage ends. And the crowd marvels, marvels at the profundity of Jesus' words. And we too, we too are called to marvel at the wisdom of Jesus' words as we seek to navigate life in our own pagan world as Christians who are members of the New Jerusalem.